Welcome to the Money Hour with host Tina Mitchell. Tina Mitchell, MLO 145420, is a licensed loan originator with Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited, NMLS 134871. The views expressed by the speakers on the following program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited, nor are they necessarily endorsed by Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited. Now in the studio, local mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell. Welcome to the Money Hour at 1150 AM KKNW, the Saturday, July 16th show. You can also listen to my podcast, Facebook premiere, or you can catch my show on my show YouTube channel. In addition, for any information on upcoming events, please go to tinamitchellevents.com. I am your host, Tina Mitchell, bringing in expert advice and inside knowledge on today's events and how they can impact you in this economy. That's what the show is all about. If you are hearing my show at a different time or day, you are listening to a rebroadcast. I am here to answer any questions or more importantly, to connect you with the guests that I have on the show today, please call the show at 1-855-411-50. Again, that's 1-855-411-50 or online at themoneyhour.com. And for my lineup for today's show, we have Kathleen Gordon of A Right Place for Seniors, Senior Living Options. Also, I have Keith Farron of Simply Communicate why writing a book is good for your business. And my last guest in studio today is Edward Flash of Newcastle Arts Council, making arts come alive in Newcastle. Also, if you are watching my show at a different time or day, um, it's again, it's a rebroadcast. If you're watching it on video, you can catch on Facebook premiere, or you can catch the show on my YouTube channel. I would also love to introduce my producer over at Hubber Radio, Benny. Hi, Tina. Welcome back and good to see you. Hope you're staying cool. Welcome back. Welcome back to you. Well, I was trying to be polite. Okay, you're right. It was me. Yeah. <laughs> I was the one that took the time uh, off. <laughs> and also, I want to give a little shout out and introduce uh, Becky. Hi, Tina. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Becky is my marketing director. And without Becky and Benny, the show would not be here for sure. There's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes. And I just want to uh, give them a shout out and say thank you for all the hard work that you both do. Again, great information, great guests in studio. For more information on any topic discussed, please call the show at 1-855-411-50. Or you can go to themoneyhour.com. And as I do each week, I think I'll do it this week as well and start out with a little bit of money chat. Money. Money. Tina Mitchell here with your money chat. The JOLT survey job opening and labor turnover showed that the total amount of job openings dropped 400,000, but from very high levels from 11.7 million to 11.3 million. This is an early sign that the economy is slowing and companies are pausing on their hiring. Initial job claims, which measures individuals filing for unemployment benefits for the first time increased by 4,000 to 335,000. While this is still very low level in the initial claims, the four-week moving average Average is at its highest since December and has been consistently moving higher. Continuing claims, which are those that continue to receive benefits after their initial claim, increased by 5,000 to 1.373 million, which is the highest rating since late April. The ADP would have normally released their employment report for June, but they announced that they are retooling their national reemployment 
report to provide a more robust, high-frequency view of the labor market and trajectory of economic growth. In preparation for the changeover to the new report methodology, they are pausing the current release and have targeted August 31st, 2022 to reintroduce the new ADP National Employment Report. The Atlanta Fed has revised their, revised their Q2 GDP estimated from 0% to negative 2.1% following some weak economic data uh, that we've seen. Now, after a negative 1.6 first quarter, final GDP reading in the Atlanta Fed is correct. We could have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. So does this mean that the uh, referency for recession of the NB of economic research will call a recession soon? Well, it's important to note that we will not get the final GDP Q2 GDP reading until three months after the quarter ends in September. But let me share the NBER's commentary on how they call for recessions. The definition emphasizes that a recession involves a significant decline in economic activity and is spread across the economy and lasts for more than a few months. Now, there are three main criteria, depth, diffusion, and duration, while each needs to be met individually to some degree, extreme conditions revealed by one criteria may partially offset weaker indications for another. Now, for an example, in the case of the February 2020 peak in economic activity, the committee concluded that substantially dropped activity had been so great so wide and diffuse throughout the economy that even if proven to be quite brief, the downturn should be classified as a recession. Now, the economic data the NBER pays most attention to are real personal income, less transfers, non-farm payroll, and employment. Employment is measured by the household survey, real personal consumption expenditures, wholesale and retail sales adjusted for price changes, and industrial production. In recent decades, the two measures that we have put the most weight on are real personal income, less transfers, and non-farm payroll employment. The committee makes a separate determination of the calendar quarter of the peak or truth based on measures of aggregate economic activity over the relevant quarters. Now, two measures that are important in the determination of quarterly peaks and thrusts, but that are not available monthly are expenditure side and income side estimates of real gross domestic product or GDP and GDI. The committee also waits to identify a trough or period of time after it has actually occurred. With that being said, while two consecutive quarters of negative GDP is not the official definition of a recession, the reason why it became a Wall Street rule of thumb is that we have never had successive, a, a successive quarterly declines in the real GDP without there being an actual and BER definition def defined recession eventually. So I believe the formal announcement that we are going to see a recession is going to be coming soon. The good news mortgage interest rates historically favor well during a recession. So we most likely will see mortgage interest rates decrease. Tina Mitchell, and that is your money chat. Coming up next in the money hour, senior living options, Kathleen Gordon of A Right Place for Seniors right here on 1150 AM KKNW.
Want to promote your business uniquely and effectively? KKNW is the answer. Let us help you produce a professionally sounding radio show or podcast. Learn more at 1150kknw.com. KKNW, talk variety that's live and local. You're listening to The Money Hour with your host, Tina Mitchell, on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Now, back to the show with local mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell. You are listening to The Money Hour at 1150 AM KKNW, the Saturday, July 16th show. You can also listen to my podcast, Facebook premiere, or you can listen to my show YouTube channel. In addition, for more information on my upcoming events, please go to tinamitchellevents.com. I am your host and local mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell. It is a great day to talk about money, and that is what my show is all about, how to make money save money so you can have a better quality of life for you and your family. If you are hearing my show at a different time or day, you are listening to a rebroadcast. I'm here to answer any questions or connect you with the guests that I have on the show. Please call the show at 1-855-411-50, or you can go online to themoneyhour.com. And now on my show, Kathleen Gordon of A Right Place for Seniors, a Senior Living Options right here on 1150 AM KKNW. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tina. Thanks for having me. Very excited to showcase uh, showcase you and your business. So uh, Kathleen has been a social worker in Tucson, Arizona for over 37 years. She is experienced in medical social work, hospice, case management, and counseling for elderly and disabled and nonprofit in counseling in public schools, private practice, investigations, for guardianship, and conversity cases, providing therapy for youth in a psychiatric treatment center, foster care and adoption with older children, providing workshops and seminars on parent on parenting management and grant writing in school system, training in adults and youth on stress reduction techniques. Kathleen does a lot. Kathleen completed her social work career at the Veterans Health Administration as program coordinator for medical foster home program. And when Kathleen is not working, she enjoys walking, reading, and traveling. So again, really excited to uh, to showcase you, uh, Kathleen, and what you do. So how can you help families with an elderly loved one who needs assistance? Well, what a great question. So as a senior living consultant, I work with families to help them through that process when their elderly loved one can no longer take care of themselves. And um, it's really interesting because so many calls that I get are something like, hey, you know, my mom just needs a little bit of help after she gets out of the shower or my dad's okay, but he just needs some help cooking. And then when I get there in person and I meet them, I assess and I find out they actually do need a lot more. And um, so I have to explain to the families sometimes what's going on with them cognitively, their short-term memory, long-term memory site things, um, do a physical assessment. And then we talk about what, what is the family really looking for? What do they envision mom or dad staying in their own home? Do we need in-home services? Because we can work with that. Mm -hmm. Or are they looking at a placement? Are they looking at a senior community? Um, maybe independent living by that time, they probably need more assistance. So assisted living or maybe memory care. So from that point, I research, and since I know the community here in our area, I, I know them well, I set up tours. 
I go on the tours with the families and I see them through that whole process until their loved one is yeah. moved into their yeah. home. So I make it very personal service. And what them. a great, is- you know, great service. Uh, Kathleen, we should have probably, uh, my mother-in-law, my husband's uh, mom had uh, part-time uh, caregivers and we should have probably uh, done something sooner. You know, it was her telling us she actually had to have her dog uh, Seiko, uh, find her way home. So what you're doing is, is so in, in important. So Kathleen, how much does your service cost? Well, you know what, Tina, when people ask me, I just, I love this answer because there is no cost for my service for the families. And that's what makes one of the things that makes me feel so good about it is, you know, so many times families are stressed out and maybe their loved one is in the hospital or they're in a rehab facility you know, they fell, they broke the hip and all of a sudden everything, life has changed. And when you say, oh, well, I know this person who could help you and they think, oh my gosh, but how much does it cost? Yes. You don't have to pay me anything. I get paid strictly by commission from the communities that we contract with. Yeah, that is, uh, that's, that is really great to be able to offer something that's um, able to come from a a community sort, a community supporting platform. So uh, Kathleen, what signs or symptoms should a family member be aware of and may indicate that their elderly loved one might need a little assistance? Gosh, there's, there's a lot. Um, So on the physical end, there's things like You know, if you notice that your mom or dad has bruises that you haven't seen before, they have cuts or scrapes, ask them if they've had a fall or maybe you know they had a fall and then you're saying, are you okay? And most, you know what? Most of the time parents are gonna say, oh, I'm fine because they don't really wanna be a burden to their family. And so you you need to see them. You need to go be there in person. Um, In terms of their memory, We talk about what happens with, it's called mild cognitive impairment versus like full-blown dementia. So a mild cognitive impairment is going to be things like they often, and I really emphasize that word often, they often forget things. They often forget, for example, um, their medical appointments. They forget that they just had breakfast 20 minutes ago. They forget that a family member came to visit and did their laundry for them. You know that they are going into full-blown dementia. They need more, they need more help. So basically the signs and symptoms when they cannot handle their own personal care, their memory is failing, they need help with their personal care. They need help with their shopping. They need help getting to medical appointments. Um, They need help to remember things. They need somebody to handle their finances. Yeah, that's what signs yeah. and symptoms. And, you know, speaking from experience, really taking advantage of the resources that are out there sooner than later um, because yeah, it's, it, it is, uh, it is a lot and an extra emotional when it's your mom or dad that you're trying to support when you don't have that expertise. Right. So uh, Kathleen, can a family uh, members feel safe about placing their elderly loved ones in a senior community? I mean, you hear, you hear some nightmare stories. So what would you say on that? Well, another reason and a great reason to work with a consultant, because we know the communities, um, we have vetted them. I know, for example, in my area, I know the staff members, I can say, Hey, I've talked to Anna over here and I've talked to Sue over here, that sort of thing. Um, 
And before I take a family on a tour, I've always gone myself. I make sure they are okay with um, the Department of Health. I will check to make sure that they don't have any deficiencies. Um, I want to know that they have enough staff members because the last thing I want is for a family member to call me, you know, two weeks later and say, hey, Kathleen, you know, you told me this place was good, but they don't have enough staff to take care of my mom. I'm really worried. Yeah. They are fine and they are great. Um, and really, I think one thing for families to know is that these communities they really emphasize independence for as long as possible. So it's not like, oh gosh, I'm putting my mom or dad away and oh gosh, you know, they're just, they might as well roll over in the grave. That's not it at all. They are wonderful. They're professional. And I really encourage families to go take a look, go, yeah. go take, go, go on some tours. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So Kathleen, uh, when is a good time to plan for transition into senior living community? Oh gosh. You know, I want to say it's never too early. Now. You, need, you um, need to think about it now. <laughs> you do. You know, we put so much time and effort into thinking about things like, gosh, you know, planning my 401k and my retirement. And we think along those lines, okay, pay off the mortgage, pay off the car and get the kids through college or whatever. What do we do for planning for end of life care? Yeah. And a lot of people, unfortunately, don't. So I would say... When you're thinking about retirement, start thinking about end of life care. Thinking about how and where. Do you want to be in a large facility that some of them can be just like a cruise ship on land and it's anything and everything you want. You never have to change another light bulb. You never have to take out the trash. There might be a place up the road here with five restaurants in the facility. Of course, the more you have, the more you're going to pay. Yeah. Um, so planning ahead, talk to your family members about your wishes, about what kind of a place. Do you plan to stay in your own home and bring in services? I think, you know, the reality is, Tina, is that every single one of us have to face that mortality. We all get older. We all are going to face decline. And so we need to prepare for that. Yeah. And great way to do that is just to be having those conversations with our family members and our friends and let them know what our wishes are. What do we plan to do? Yeah, What's nothing to procrastinate uh, on. I mean, you know what it looks like when you procrastinate on doing your taxes. You know what it looks like when you procrastinate in getting an investment in estate planning. I mean, all these things are important, uh, even at a higher level. You know, you don't want to be procrastinating when it comes to uh, getting into your senior years and what that next uh, stage and journey is going to look like for you. Make those decisions now and plan ahead. So Kathleen, uh, do you partner with other professionals in this transition process uh, for the elderly? Oh my gosh, yes. A lot of other professionals. It is really a team effort with many of these. I partner with real estate agents. I partner with elder law attorneys, with physicians, with nurses, social workers, um, folks who work at hospitals who do the discharge planning, um, fiduciaries. Um, I just met with a real estate agent this morning and, um, you know, folks who work in, in the communities themselves sometimes. Um, sometimes they know each other and sometimes they'll contact me and say, hey, for some reason, this just wasn't a good fit. You know, we've had this person X amount of time. Can you work with them? Yeah. Um, a lot of times the family members will just call me, they'll find out. And so they call on their own. So it's really partnering with a lot of people. 
Yeah. Yeah. So what about changing physicians? So when they are going into a senior community, do they have to change their physicians or can they stay, remain? You know, a lot of times people will say, you know, I'm going to keep my doctor because I like my doctor. I've had this doctor for X number of years and they can do that. Oftentimes what happens is they move into a community and whether it's a large community where there's, you know, a lot of people and lots of services and maybe they have a team right there on their campus or even a smaller home, adult care home in a community where they have a medical team that's familiar with their patients as well. Um, many times what happens is the resident moves in and they see how the other residents are being treated and how familiar this medical team is with all of them and their staff wow. and they get comfortable. And so they decide to go that way. It's not necessarily, um, it doesn't have to be that way, but oftentimes it is. That makes, that makes sense. So uh, again, your services are free for the families. They're not paying anything to have an expert that knows all of the communities that are available out there. Um, just really quick question. Um, and it, because we've got, uh, we need to wrap up the show. Um, what are, uh, what is just an average on, on cost? Mm. So you know, it's interesting because uh, the Tucson area and actually Washington state area are not far apart. So we're looking at the lower end about 3,800 and higher end um, over 6,500, 7,000. The more hands-on care that the patient needs, of course, the more the cost is going to be. Um, memory care is also more expensive. Um, so we need to keep that in mind. And just kind of on the side, um, I will say there's a couple people in Washington that you can get a hold of. Adrian Bird can be reached at 360-209-5667 or Cassandra Johnson at 425-329-6620. Yeah, and thank you for the and shout I'm out for them. You can just call into the show. I know both of them. Um, I've, I do a lot of work uh, with the organization. I just really appreciate you being here, Kathleen, and supporting what you do. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tina. And I said, I got to wrap up the show. I meant to say I need to wrap up the segment because I'm not going anywhere. Coming up next on the money hour, Keith Furren of Simply Communicate, why writing a book is good for your business right here on 1150 AM KKNW. Tell your friends about Alternative Talk 1150. You're listening to the money hour with your host, Tina Mitchell on Alternative Talk 1150 AM. Now, back to the show with local mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell. You are listening to The Money Hour at 1150 AM, KKNW, the Saturday, July 16th show. You can also catch my podcast, Facebook premiere show, or my show on my show YouTube channel. In addition, for more information on my upcoming events, you can go to tinamitchellevents.com. I'm your host and local mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell. I'm here to help you have build a strong financial blueprint one week and one show at a time. If you are hearing my show at a different time or day, you are listening to rebroadcast. I'm here to answer any questions or to connect you with my guest. Please call the show at 1-855-411-50 or you can go online to themoneyhour.com. And now in studio, why writing a book is good for your business. I'm having a conversation with Keith Fern of Simply Communicate right here on 1150 AM KKNW. Keith, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. It's good to be back, Tina. Yeah, very excited. So a little bit about Keith. According to New York Times, 81% of people say 
I want to write a book. Less than 0.5% actually do. So why? They don't have a plan from start to the process and making it to the finish line in their book not only is possible, but much easier than they could ever dream. Writing a book is not only a wonderful accomplishment, but it's one of the best business decisions that you can make. Keith is a messaging and public speaker coach and has written over 10 books himself, have helped business owners, entrepreneurs, coaches, and nonprofit leaders get their words out of their heads on pages and into the hands of their ideal reader. So you can reach out to Keith at I simply communicate.com. So again, really excited to have a conversation uh, with you, Keith. So let's start out with why should your average Joe business person be writing a book? Well, I I could go through a whole lot of reasons, but the three that I would give, one is is really the confidence of when there's there's something just when you've written a book and it shows up in the mail and you're holding that first copy in your hands, there is just something people talk about it, legitimizing your kind of authority, which is actually my second reason, the kind of the authority in an industry, people that write a book, you're just seen as an authority. <laughs> and, uh, but I think there's also something that happens inside of you that when you've gotten that out and you're holding it in your hand, I think people that I know who have, have gotten their process, their method, their whatever it is in a bunch of different industries, get it out of their head and into print, mm-hmm. their own confidence in the way they serve their clients just goes up. So I would say, you know, confidence and authority, but then also a lead, I I say a lead in to finances rather than just making money, because I think that a big piece of how your average Joe business person Mm -hmm. makes money with a book is how that book becomes the entry point into a conversation about doing more, whether it's a real estate agent that writes, but it doesn't have to be a long book. I mean, I think that some of the most successful books that were written by average Joes, obviously you've got the people that write, you know, sell millions of copies, but the average Joe person, the the books that are 60 to 80 80 pages and solve a very specific problem in their industry, Mm -hmm. I think uh, are lead in to oftentimes 10, 50, or $100,000 contracts. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my book is uh, much more pages than that. But what I really loved about my book that I, I didn't even realize the benefit until it, after it was, it was written, when you get with people, the whole idea is you want to connect with people. And to connect with people, there are things that you want to share about yourself because that's connection. But ideally, a connection is when you're not really a lot of part of the conversation as much as getting to know that other person. And when you have a book, it allows you to not feel you have to share things about you because you have your book book. And so I can really spend quality time with you, Keith, getting to know you. And then it can be, oh, by the way, if you want to know a little bit more about you, about me, uh, you know, here's a complimentary copy of my book. And, you know, not that you have to give your book away, but, you know, you can have that as an, as an ability to get people to, to uh, know you without having to share. And then the people that really want to get to know you, they will read your book. And the ones that don't, it probably wasn't a good idea that you talked a lot about yourself anyways. right? right. <laughs> so uh, when did you write your first book? I, it's it's an easy one to remember because I wrote it while we were pregnant with our first child. So Ooh. it was it was in 2002. 
Okay. And so I, I shared with my listeners in, in the introduction for you that you have wrote 10 books and that is such an accomplishment coming from a person that just wrote one book. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Working, working on another one right now. So, so exciting. So what has changed in the book market in the last couple decades? Uh, I know a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, to, to say everything is, uh, I know, is just this catch-all, but it really feels like, as somebody who has self, you know, self-published my first book in 2002, and I've traditionally published a couple and self-published a bunch, and done that in kind of each of the five-year periods since then, so much has changed, and I would really uh, kind of identify five big categories where it's changed. One is the price. And I, I know that you wanted to talk about that more in depth later, but uh, the, the, typically when I ask people how much they spent on publishing their, self-publishing their book or how much they think it's going to cost, I see people wasting heaps of money and, or they don't write a book because they think it's going to be so expensive. Yeah. And it's just, and it, and that's because when it, when you first started out, it was, yeah. I mean, when I wrote my first book to get a, you know, the cover is always more expensive than printing the guts of the book. Cause the uh-huh. cover is the quality paper and the full color sure. and blah, blah, blah. But I had to print 2000 copies. It, it probably cost me eight to $12,000 to get my first book in my hand. Uh-huh. And it's now to get my to give you an idea to get my last book in my hand uh, cost under five hundred. So wow! Uh, so the, the so the the price has plummeted, the quality has skyrocketed. So while the price has gone down, how, how many industries have the price go down while the quality goes up? And wow. and this is one where it has that you can. It used to be very very obvious what a self published book looked like. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah. now it's nowhere near, you know, you, you yeah. can now even as recently as last year, Amazon, if you're doing, going through KDP, you now even have a hardcover option. Uh-huh. So yep. it's not even just hardcover that has to be. Um, some is the perception. And I would say sure. that that goes hand in glove with the last one, the mm-hmm. quality and perception together, that the, the perception of a self-published book isn't as big a negative as it was yeah. 20 years ago. Well, when I uh, wrote my book, I was really excited about uh, writing it probably at 12, you know, 12 months into it. And all the thoughts were coming to my head and I had my notes. I was, you know, talking, my husband is making noise out there. I hope that we can't hear oh, it. I can't hear anything. Oh, oh my gosh. Keith, um, anyways, the, um, uh, so I was taking notes and, you know, just keeping writing down my thoughts, but then I, I wrote my book and literally sat down and wrote it in three weekends. It took 10 months to publish because once I received that, that, uh, that original one that actually came to my door, then I read it a bunch of times before it actually, I went and published it. So, um, mm. but why do majority of people not finish their books? I'd say they don't have a plan. They, uh, I, one of the things I tell my clients all the time is that every vision needs a plan without a plan. A vision is just a dream. And, and that for so many people, they have this, this idea, this dream of writing a book and they write the first couple chapters, but they don't have a, a plan from the get-go of, uh, of what, you know, who this is going to serve, who's really going to read this, 
how am I best going to solve their problem? What is the outline of that going to be? That when you have a, a, a plan of attack, that, you know, I, I mean, just take, take this show, for example. We, we hopped on before you hit record, and we were talking with Benny and Becky and the other two guests, and, and we were talking through, and you walked through your plan, and you've done this enough times where you know what the plan is. And so, not that weird things don't happen, but the number of times that really bad, you know, show ruining things happen is extremely, extremely rare for you because you have a plan. But if you just said, you know, I'm just going to go record for an hour every week, some weeks would be good and some weeks would be bad, but you would have a lot of ones where you never finished recording. Makes and I think the same sense. is true with a book that people go in with an idea, but they don't go in with a plan. Yeah, the idea, the idea is the first and the plan is the second, uh, for sure. Yeah, when I, when I wrote my book, it wasn't to be a best-selling author or to make money off it. It was just to really have something that I could, you know, I could share for people that were interested in, you know, what I've learned in my 27 years in career. But why do books lose money? Well, I books lose money. Because people, you know, when you don't have a plan, you waste money and spend money in places that you shouldn't be spending money. And so I think that when people start out, you know, they say that the, the average self-published book sells somewhere around 300 copies. Okay. So just doing the simple math, and I'll get to, because tra traditionally publishing books aren't significantly better than that, quite honestly. So, but self-publishing books, if you're, if you are spending, let's just even to use easy numbers, let's just say that you spent $3,000 in the process of self-publishing your book. Well, if you're going to sell 300 copies, mm -hmm. your profit margin has to be, you can't give any away for free uh -huh. and your profit margin has to be $10 per book before you're going to even get to the place where you've broken even. So I think that when people spend- And you're going to pay a, seven, well, I don't know, depending on how big your book is, but you know, I pay seven bucks for a copy of my own book. Right, right. <laughs> so it depends, yeah, it depends on a whole lot of things, whether you're, you've got a hardback copy, whether you've got a paperback, how many pages it is, what kind of quality. I mean, there, there are all different ways that you can, you can spend money um, on, on doing it. And I just think that when it comes to, to books losing money, not having a plan, not have uh, wasting money at the beginning, yeah. and then also not having what I call a launch team, not having people who are in it with you. I think that, um, that all, all of those contribute, but, but I also think that it's really important because if 81% of people in America, according to the New York times, want to write a book, uh -huh. then there are also there, then there are people that are watching this that are in that category. And they've believed the notion that I need to get a traditional publishing contract. Cause if I get a traditionally published contract, they'll promote my book like crazy and it will sell 10, 20, 30,000 copies at least minimum. And I remember having a conversation with a CEO of one of the five major publishing companies in the country, uh -huh. having a conversation with him. And he said, what most people don't know is that we are amazing at our jobs and 15% of our books make money. Yeah. 85% of the time they don't get it right. Yeah. That's and you're talking about major, major publishers wow. that just to, to just assume that if I get an agent and that agent gets me a contract, 
you know, you're, yeah. you're just, it, it's going to take you way too long. And, and you know, for the, the normal Joe, Joe Smith businessman out there or a Tina Mitchell uh, that's been in the mortgage industry, it's really the, the money is made in really just as you shared at the beginning of the show. I mean, you have instantly leveled yourself up without them ever looking at your credentials or anything that you do. Oh, by the way, um, you know, I'm an author of such and such. So you, you're going to make more money in the business that you do. You're going to have more opportunities. You're going to retain, um, have higher conversion just because you have now leveled yourself up with the expertise that you have your own book. And so just a really exciting uh, venture and a profitable venture, whether your book is out there selling and making money that way um, or not. So what is the biggest mistake that you see people making in the writing process? Yeah, that, that one is, that's one I see time and time again. And that is that writers write what they want to write rather than what readers want to read. And if you're, you know, if you're writing a book for your family and you're writing a book that's a memoir of your life and you just want your kids and grandkids and great grandkids to have it and whatever, I still think you should write that book. I still think you should write because the process has gotten cheap enough and simple enough and fast enough that if you want to write a book, you can, you can write a book and get it self-published and have a good quality book that can last on, even if you only sell 50 to 100 copies. And the whole process can cost you under 500 bucks. My, I contend that, that no first-time author should spend more than $1,000 to write their first, to get their first book in their hand. That's, uh -huh. that's, that's my philosophy mm -hmm. um, and what I help my clients do. And so, but when it comes to writing, if you're wanting to write a book that reaches more people than the people who share your last name, <laughs> yeah. then you need to write a book that people want to read. And so when you're writing it, you need to e explore in that initial plan process, who is my ideal reader yes. and what problem do I solve for her? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And, and when you, when you identify that, when you become crystal clear on the person that you serve and the problem that you solve, then it's, it becomes significantly easier to write a book yes. and it's a book that people will want to read. Yeah, makes sense. And, and yeah, I, I spent about 2,500 on my, my original plan uh, was to have somebody actually change my writing to make it sound, you know, professional. The reality is, is when I looked at what they were doing, it was not my words in the way that I talk. So I'm 97% of the words are mine, but my book was not meant for people to buy it. It was meant for me to share what I had to share and it needed to come from me and the words and how I normally speak. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely interesting uh, uh, process for sure. Mm -hmm. So what is the, um, what is the biggest mistake that people people make when marketing their book, when they're writing a book to go out there and get it to the public and to be able to make money off of it? It comes down to the number one. One is you're trying to do it alone instead of with a team. Mm -hmm. And the other reason I use the number one is because you do a one-time push and then you quit. That's what most people do. They, they buy themselves, get the book done, they get it in their hands, they order way too many copies at the beginning. So they've got 600 copies sitting in their garage. And then they do a big Facebook blast or a big Facebook ad campaign. And it runs for 10 days. They're really frustrated that they lost a ton of money. And so they think their book's not very good and they don't talk about it anymore. 
Yeah. So, so like anything, it's anything else, you know, Keith, right? I mean, if you're, if you're doing any type of business, you can't touch somebody one time, you've got to be really to go out there and, and market at a high level. You have to hire a team that has the expertise that can help you through that process. Yeah. Otherwise it's not going to be a successful one. Um, Keith, I got to wrap up and get to the next segment, but I love having you in studio. I'm excited to have you come back in and share everything that you're doing. And I'm excited because I gave you my online calendar that we get something to talk personally uh, sure. in, in my next uh, venture as well. So thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Happy to do it. I look forward to talking. Thanks, Tina. Thank you. Coming up next in the Money Hour, Edward Flash of Newcastle, Newcastle Arts Council, making arts come alive in Newcastle right here on 1150 AM KKNW. So, you know, according to the New York Times, 81% of people say they want to write a book. Less than 5% actually do. Why? They don't have a plan from the start and a process that makes finishing their book not only possible, but much easier than they've ever dreamed. Writing a book is not only a wonderful accomplishment, but it's one of the best business decisions you can make. Keith Farron is a messaging and public speaking coach and has written over 10 books and helped business owners, entrepreneurs, coaches, and nonprofit leaders get their words out of their heads, onto pages, and into the hands of their ideal readers. So reach out to Keith at isimplycommunicate.com. That's the letter I, simplycommunicate.com. No other station delivers this much variety. Alternative Talk 1150. You're listening to The Money Hour with your host, Tina Mitchell, on Alternative Talk 1150 AM. Now, back to the show with local mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell. Hi, Ed. Very excited to have you in studio. Thank you for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Very excited. So let me share a little bit uh, about Ed. Ed Flash, uh, co-president of Newcastle Arts Council based in Newcastle, Washington. Newcastle Arts Council has a goal of making the arts come alive in Newcastle through promoting, supporting, encouraging the arts in our local area. Ed has a background in finance and accounting, but throughout his life has been an active supporter of arts and culture activities in our societies to receiving the value from his parents. Ed, along with his wife and three kids, have called Newcastle, Washington their home for the last 15 plus years. And it's so extra special to have you here, Ed, that I actually normally right after the music, I introduce you again, but I'm just so excited to have you here. It's extra special for me because uh, to support Ed and the Newcastle Arts Council, because I've lived in Newcastle myself with my husband for over eight 18 years and was inspired to join the Newcastle Arts Council board. And I work closely underneath Ed to support Newcastle and see how hard he works. And um, so I'm just so excited. Literally, Ed, I'm so excited. I didn't do my normal intro to bring you back into studio. So Ed, let's go ahead and talk about who is Newcastle Arts Council. Yeah, so you you kind of stole, stole my thunder. Um, as as you mentioned, um, we're a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. Um, we're here to promote and support and encourage um, the arts in the Newcastle, Washington area, and it's so important to do that um, from lots of uh, lots of avenues. Um, we do um, have a motto or a compelling purpose of making the arts come alive in Newcastle. And a few years ago, we um, tried to think of something that 
uh, we could create as a, a quote unquote tagline for us that would bring people into the organization that would make them feel good about the organization. And that's when we came up with making the arts come alive in Newcastle. If you think about it, there's two key words there. One is making and one is alive. And what we do as the Newcastle Arts Council is try and bring the arts to the community um, in terms of um, being able to experience the creation of art. And so a lot of our activities are really proactive um, and let the individuals who attend them um, actually make art. Um, as well as, um, if you think about it, making is not only actually the creation of it, but you can experience arts through going to museums or going to art galleries or going to a play um, or going to a lecture um, that talks about some sort of art element. Um, so that, that's also making it, um, making the arts. Um, the other keyword is alive. And I think about alive as um, something that is positive and also very proactive, right? Live is a, is a positive word. Um, and so as we think about the arts and um, we want to think of it in a very positive light. Um, and so that's what we came up with, making the arts come alive in Newcastle. Yeah, I love it. And again, being behind the scenes and and on the, the board, I get to see a lot in uh, uh, every month how uh, Newcastle Arts Council is coming up with something that the neighbors can get involved in, in creating art themselves, being led and through an experienced person or whatever that monthly topic is in that particular art. So very exciting. And again, behind the scenes, uh, just see how hard you work, uh, Ed. And I just feel proud to be uh, supporting uh, behind you just a little bit in comparison to what you do. So why did you get involved and involved at such a high level? Because it takes a lot for what you do, uh, Ed, and I, again, I speak from experience because I see it behind the scenes. Well, well, thank you. We have a great board and you're certainly part of that um, that is so very supportive of all of our activities. So I don't do it all myself. Um, I do have some, some support people behind me that are, um, they're really great people. Um, I was very lucky growing up um, where I had um, art all around me. Um, my, both my parents were very creative in what they did. My dad was a, a painter. Um, my mom uh, did needlepoint and at one point made all her dresses. So she was very handy um, from that um, perspective. We spent a lot of our weekends and evenings going to art galleries and uh, going to museums and plays and, and such and really experiencing the arts um, here in the local um, Seattle area where I grew up. Um, and so my thought was, well, gee, I was so lucky to have those types of experiences and, and experience the arts in, in again, an active way. Um, why can't I help to bring that to the community of Newcastle? And so other people can have that same experience and other people can learn to love the arts just as much as I did um, with the background that I had growing up. Yeah, and, and that's, it's so great when you have such passion behind something you do, and that's why you're so great at leading uh, uh, this, and, and so it's great to hear uh, your story. So what is the history of Newcastle Arts Council, and why was it formed? Yeah, so I actually wasn't there from the very beginning. Um, there was a group of um, uh, interested citizens in, in supporting the art that got together probably six or seven years ago um, and had one event. Um, it was a piano player at our local, uh, one of our local um, senior homes, um, and it was a huge success. Um, there was people that came in from the community. There were people 
um, at the facility that attended. Um, everyone had a really great time. And, and from that, it kind of built, built on that where um, we realized that the city of Newcastle and the surrounding area, Newcastle, for those of you who may not know where we are, we're sandwiched between Bellevue and Renton. It's a small community. There's about 13,000 residents. Um, so um, we do draw people from Newcastle, but we also draw people from um, around the area and certainly over the last couple of years um, with Zoom, we've drawn people actually from around the world that have come in and um, taken part in some of our activities that have been online. Um, but it essentially evolved from that where we realized that there was a need in the community for arts and art programming. And um, we've just um, developed it from, from that. Um, a few years ago, we had about 30 programs throughout the year, uh -huh. uh, which was outstanding um, just to, to bring something in a, in a couple of years up from scratch to have that kind of impact on our community was was really impressive in my mind. Yeah, well, and, uh, you know, I was going to say in six years, everything, um, everything that's around Newcastle art related and all of the activities and events um, that are consistently happening, it's really impressive because six years is a short period of time. So what have you accomplished in the past few years, Ed? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, in building upon that and some of the programming, um, we currently have and have for the last few years a relationship with the Newcastle Library and KCLS um, to do at least one program a month. Um, we've had uh, programs with our seniors in the area, um, film series at one of our um, community uh, senior centers. Um, we also do two art shows every year. Um, one is in March and that's centered on um, youth artists. And we usually have about 25 to 30 are so um, artists that um, we can are able to showcase their work toward the community. Um, and then we have another art show in September that is uh, more geared toward adults. And this is the fifth year in a row that we will have had that um, art show in September. Um, and um, we fill in with other programs throughout the year. The other thing that we um, do is we help the city of Newcastle with art installations. And we've been able to do a few of those over the, the last couple of years. One of them um, we just put up, which Tina, you were a part of, um, which we were very, uh, very excited about. We did a collaborative mural um, where we had 28 community members representing um, city officials, the police department, the library, um, local businesses, youth and seniors, um, all paint a <clears throat> foot by foot block. Um, and it all came together in a mural um, that we put up at our local park, uh, Lake Bourne Park. Yeah, and it it is beautiful, and it was great putting it up to see everybody that's stopping in the park. Like, what is that? That's just like they're so uh, drawn to it. So a lot of fun. So who else are your main partners in your efforts, Ed? Yeah, and I mentioned um, the King County Library System yep. um, has been a great partner. City of Newcastle has been a great partner. Um, <clears throat> King County is also blessed to have an arts and cultural organization called Four Culture which provides funding for organizations like ours um, to be able to provide the type of programming and the type of activities that we do um, to our community members. So we could not do what we do without um, For Culture. Um, the other thing that we've done very effectively is um, build partnerships with some of our local businesses. Mm -hmm. And um, if any businesses that are listening, or business owners that are listening to um, this show, I would highly encourage you to seek out some art organizations within your community and partner with them. Um, we provide publicity um, for them, and um, it also gives them a great feeling um, to be part of a community and part of 
community involvement. Yes. So, um, Ed, can you uh, share uh, the exciting stuff that are related? And we've talked a little bit about the events, but um, share what's happening in Newcastle this summer. Yeah, we are so excited. Um, summer's a great time for Newcastle in the arts. So there's a, some great events that are coming up. Um, one of them is on July 23rd, and it's our um, Newcastle Commons Art Walk. And we have about 40 um, art vendors and community organizations that are going to have booths there, um, selling their creativity, um, great place for people to come and meet. There'll be food, there'll be music all day. Um, so that's a wonderful activity. This is the second year in a row that we've done that. Um, we also have concerts in the parks every Wednesday night starting July 20th um, for five consecutive Wednesdays. Um, there's a concert at Lake Warren Park from 7 o'clock to 8.30 with local bands. Um, these are big, huge uh, events that uh, create a community and community involvement. And then we have Newcastle Days, which is on September 10th, and that's our Newcastle celebration, um, which again brings together the community um, for celebrating um, the summer. And this is the we haven't had it for two years, so we're super excited that we'll be able to bring that back this year. Yeah, I came on the board during uh, COVID, so it is nice to see uh, the board come alive in what uh, you know we can actually support now that things are a little bit normal. Um, and beyond the summer, Ed? Beyond the summer, we have um, programs for the library going on, or with the library going on throughout the year. So we're bringing in the Dickens Carolers. We have um, uh, art form called Zentangle that we're going to be teaching. We're actually going to be doing hula dancing. Um, so if you want to learn how to hula dance, there's um, that program as well, and then various other um, programs throughout the year. Yeah. So Ed, can you share why is it important to support arts and culture organizations? Yeah, great question. Um, so I think everybody probably knows that there's some really real value in being involved in the arts from an individual and a, a learning perspective and a, a mental development perspective. And that could be at any age um, that you are. So either youth or as an adult. I was always taught that you never stop learning. Um, so even you know, as, a, as an adult or a senior, you may think you know everything, but the arts is just a great way to continue to learn and, and experience. Helps with self-esteem, it helps with self-awareness, it helps with problem-solving skills. But not only from an individual, um, this is a statistic that I was blown away by. 10.3% um, of Washington State's GDP in 2020 was related to arts and culture sector, the arts and culture sector. And that's $62 billion that goes into arts and culture. Um, and that just simply blew me away. So it's an important part of our society, arts and culture sector. sector. And so um, it's something that we need to continue to support. Yeah, 100%. So, Ed, I got to wrap up in a few seconds yep. here. Somebody wants to know about Newcastle Arts Council, get on the mailing list, donate, get involved. Where do they go? So, yeah, our website is um, newcastlewaarts.org. Um, you can also get on our mailing list. We send out one newsletter a month. And that uh, if you want to get on the mailing list, you can send a note to newcastlewaarts at gmail.com. We'd love volunteers. We'd love donors. We'd love people to get involved. Yeah. And you can also reach out to the show because I'm part of the board and I know Ed personally, yeah. so I will get you hooked up. So Ed, thank you so much uh, for being here again. It was just really an honor to be able to, um, to have you on my show and uh, share the passion behind Newcastle Arts Council. Thank you.
Yeah. And Tina Mitchell signing off for the day. Got to wrap things up. Uh, end of the show, but I will be here next week and same time, same place right here on 1150 AM KKNW. Tina Mitchell, MLO 145-420 is a licensed loan originator with Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited. NMLS 134871. The views expressed by the speakers on the preceding program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited, nor are they necessarily endorsed by Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited.